Grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible this morning and would like to have one to, to follow along, uh, there's a stack of them at the bookshelf on the way into the room. Love for you to use those. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those home and make it yours. No greater gift we could give you than the Word of God. Uh, there's also a new practice here where we're not inserting your sermon note outlines but they're just in a pile at the table on the way into the room uh, for you who are note takers to be able to grab that and make a little binder and be able to reference back. We're joyfully uh, approaching year number two in our sermon series through the Gospel of John. What an amazing testimony of Christ's life, death, and resurrection that is so good for all of us. And, and while we've never done a series this long, I pray there are many more like it, and, and it's been a joy to have so many of you come to me and say, this is just such a, a great thing that God is doing in us through this sermon series, and been really growing a ton. Um, it's been a joy to preach it and to spend this time in God's Word and see what it's doing in our lives. Um, we left off last week with the testimony in chapter 20 of John of the resurrected Christ revealing himself to Mary first and then to the disciples. And we pick up today in the second part of his conversation with the disciples in that locked room that they had bunkered themselves down in with his holy presence there uh, and pick up now with verse 21. As Jesus turns now, they're focused towards what's ahead. Look with me, John 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is the second time Jesus says in this conversation, Peace be with you. And as we'll see in a little while, it's not the last. Realize that the threat of persecution for these who are faithful followers of him is very real and potent. In the hours following the brutal death, murder of Jesus, his faithful followers are are in quite a state of of fear and the Jewish elite pursuing them. Uh, And that has not changed. The doors are still locked and life is still very hard. Um, And so it would would make sense that Jesus is bringing peace. And we're going to talk more about that. But one of the things I want to remind you of is what we read in verse 20, which was that there's not only the presence of peace, but the presence of joy. In verse 20, it says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. There was a joy. The presence of their master, of their king, of their God, brought about joy in the midst of hardship, in the midst of of oppression and fear and hiding. And I pray that you would come to know the same, especially as we work through the text today, what God wants to do in each of our lives. This theme of peace and joy in the midst of great turmoil is a major point of teaching and growing in the Lord that we see throughout the New Testament narrative. Those who claim Christ as Lord and Savior need not miss the reality of what it means to be alive in Christ, even in the midst of great suffering and hardship, that we will have joy, we will have peace in who He is and in what He has done. The peace and the joy realizes not a result of of circumstances changing or temporary provisions. They're in who Christ is and who we are in Him. It's a prosperity gospel that 
that tears at the very fabric of, of the true gospel to, to really prop Jesus and belief in Jesus as the means to some kind of greater end, as in he's the genie in the lamp that gets us the things our hearts really want in temporary successes and treasures and freedoms. And no, I mean, those are still fleeting things, things that come and go, relationships that will end at some point. It is our true peace and joy is found in Christ. We must see the beauty of the gospel as it is truly taught in Scripture to correct anything that maybe we've picked up along the way from preachers or churches who have put out um, false gospels to attract the masses um, and, and tickle itching ears to hear what people want to hear just enough to get them into the church to participate in these things. It's a ploy. It's a ploy for temporary peace and joy in temporary things that will come and go. Nothing and no one satisfies like Jesus. Yes, we will struggle. Yes, we will suffer in this life. Jesus is clear to say so again and again and again. The best of the best are killed for their faith. It bothers me, those who buy in the prosperity gospel, because they're just simply not reading the Holy Scriptures. We must see rightly these beautiful truths. Nothing and no one satisfies like Jesus. This is truly the gift of the gospel that changes everything. Understand, their peace is ultimately in Christ. And, and, and so this is why he keeps saying, peace be with you. In my presence, in me, peace be with you. The disciples would surely need this as they are about to embark on a ministry journey and in many ways like nothing they had really been through yet. Jesus is taking their focus now in this verse and the verses to come. and He's putting it on their mission. He's putting it on their sending, on what's next in his redemptive plan. And so he follows this statement of peace be with you with as the Father has sent me. Before we get into his sending of them, let's for a moment consider this the power of those words. As the Father has sent me, especially in relationship to where he is in his mission. Consider with me his mission, not just his life of perfect obedience to God, not just his sacrificial death on our behalf, not just his resurrection unto victory over death as the first among us. But going back to the beginning, the whole narrative of human history, going back to before time, the things the scripture teaches us about the covenant of redemption, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit made before time to have a people that would be redeemed unto the praise of his glorious grace So when you consider the scope of his entire mission of Jesus, who's been on the scene, whose beginning didn't happen with the incarnation, Jesus who is eternal with the Father and the the Spirit. The plan to save for himself a people who would forever sing of his glorious grace has been a mission set before time and has been now patiently carried out throughout history. Jesus is that sent Savior, that promised one that we read about in Genesis 13, 3, 15. 
the promised Redeemer. And God's plan, though, for the redemption of his people doesn't end here. That's why Jesus is turning their eyes to what's ahead. He wants his gospel to be taken to the ends of the earth for generations still to come, generations not even born yet, by which he will give them ears to hear and eyes to see, to savor the good news, to believe in Christ with their lives, with real, genuine repentance and faith. So just as God the Father has sent God the Son, I mean, when he says that, just as the Father sent me, Wow, just to slow down and take all that in and what that means. Now Jesus says, the time has come for me to send you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Jesus is saying, peace be with you as you go out now on your mission. As you take what you have seen and heard and as you are now to testify, to be my witnesses, he'll say, to make disciples unto the nations, to teach them my word and my ways, to do this until there are representatives of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yeah, you'll need peace on that journey. (laughs) Because the world hates me. He's made clear in his gospel. And therefore it hates you because you belong to me. Because you were sent out as representatives on my behalf for my glory. I mean, let's just remember how central Jesus' words have been all throughout the Gospel of John as he speaks of how volatile the opposition is of the sinful world and therefore then the great struggle and persecution that will come for his true followers. Jesus said to them in Mark 10, 16, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Speaking clearly, this is dangerous. This is going to cost you. This won't be easy. In in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, if you remember, 18 through 27, Jesus gives them this, this foundation that they must understand if they're going to endure what's to come. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, and the the world would love you as its own. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. And if I do not, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and have hated both me and my father. Jesus continues. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. 
But when the helper comes, I will send you I will send you to from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. See the commissioning language, the sending of, of his disciples. See Jesus warning them of the oppression, the persecution, the hatred that they will face. Yeah, the disciples will need peace. The same peace that we need today as disciples of Christ. Before we jump back into chapter 20, let me, let me highlight one other thing here that Jesus says here in this passage of 15, because it, it gets right into where we're going next in 20. Do you notice that Jesus says, when the helper comes? If you remember when we talked through this passage, many believe the arrival of the Holy Spirit did not happen until Pentecost. Like that was the Holy Spirit's first time on the scene. Like the Holy Spirit had kind of been on the bench waiting to be called into the game. And it makes sense if, if I just do a, a simple and plain reading of just this verse, but when the helper comes, as if he's not here yet, so he's coming. And there's other single verses out of context that we can begin to create that kind of understanding and narrative. But when we go to all the Scripture, when we do the good work of letting Scripture interpret Scripture and inform us holistically, this cannot be. Because the Holy Spirit has been on the scene eternally and surely from the beginning of creation, as it testifies in Genesis, hovering over the, over the deep and throughout the work of man's history and highlighted in many places, uh, a memorable one is at the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit's on the scene, descending like a dove. There would have been no faithful believers in God up to this point in history if the Holy Spirit had not been on the scene. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who regenerates a dead heart, an enslaved soul to life. The scriptures are clear again and again. This is the work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes anyone to be spiritually alive. So Jesus doesn't mean the Holy Spirit is coming as in he's not been on the scene already, but instead is coming to do a specific work in the life of the church, in the launch of the church, in the apostles, in a very critical season until the Holy Scriptures are concluded until the testimony that then will go forth in that unique way is ready, made through the work and the Word of God, through those that He would choose to author the New Testament, bringing that special work of the Holy Spirit assigned to that season of the launch of the church to a conclusion. But the Holy Spirit has always been on the scene, is on the scene, and will continue to be on the scene in the life of of the body of Christ. There's no power. There is no endurance. There's no conviction of sin. There's no, all these things that the Spirit does would not be happening. There's other ways we can think of this wrongly. Like Jesus was never on the scene until the incarnation, until he took on flesh. And, and the sad thing is these understandings lead to great heresies, heresies like modalism, by which that God is one person who takes on different modes. 
instead of triune. Each person perfectly God, eternal in every way. And at work in specific ways. Colossians says that Jesus is the one who holds all things together. Chapter 1. So consider that with me for a moment. That means he is the one sustaining every living thing. That means Jesus was not only on the scene prior to taking on flesh. He was the one creating and sustaining the scene. (laughs) It's very existence. The scene doesn't continue if not for the work of God the Son, according to Colossians 1. And this is huge and helpful because a global understanding of what Scripture teaches as a whole helps us to understand unique verses in their time and place and helps us set up our understanding, for example, of what we see here in chapter chapter 20, verse 22 now. Look at the next verse with me. The Father sent me, I'm sending you. Peace be with you. He said that in verse 21 now, in verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So again, if I read that very finite, like, and say, Hey, the Holy Spirit's not coming until this moment. Now they're receiving the Holy Spirit. But none of these guys would have been faithful followers. They would have not believed or done anything to obey God without the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So then what is said here? Well, let's break down the whole verse. First, he breathed on them and said to them, that, that, that word, that phrasing, we see very famously, very potently in one other place in Scripture. Genesis, the very creation of man. Consider Genesis chapter 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. But again, the disciples are already alive in Christ. They already have testified faith in Him and have, through their fruit, continued to endure in faithful service to Him. They've already received the Holy Spirit. So this isn't a a new moment. What is Jesus then speaking of here? Another layer to add to it is Jesus has clearly said that the arrival of the special work of the Holy Spirit for the, the church era in the, in the launching of the church unto the finish of the canon of Scripture would happen at Pentecost. Well, Pentecost is not going to happen until after Jesus ascended. So the timing, it's not that either. So what is Jesus referring to here? Notice first that he's addressing them as a group. He breathed on them. So we must see that as, as another layer What he's doing here is he's adding to his commissioning language that all throughout this part of the text, this discussion with the disciples, it's all about his commissioning, his sending them. Live in my peace. Go out and testify my gospel. I'm sending you out just as I've been sent. Receive the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, don't push off the Holy Spirit. Know that you will need my peace Know the work I've called you to do to testify. Know that you are desperate for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Don't push off the Holy Spirit. How we need the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives every day. And how good are we, many days, of pushing off the Holy Spirit. No, no, I've got a better idea of how this should look. I have a better priority for this part of my day. I'm going to ignore that conviction of the Holy Spirit unto sin. I'm just going to keep going. 
don't push off the Holy Spirit. Let, embrace the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit to do His work all the time in your life. Consider with me for a moment our, our Word of Truth Catechism, question number 95, that says the Holy Spirit enables us to understand God's Word. Oh, how we need that every day. To convict us of sin, please, Lord. Love me enough to convict me of sin that I would turn from it. The Holy Spirit, the Scriptures say, pray for us. The Holy Spirit leads us, gives us spiritual gifts, causes us increasing desire and ability to obey God. He is the power of God at work in and through us. Praise God that He has breathed new life into each of us, spiritual life, and has sealed us, as the Scriptures speak of, with the Holy Spirit. Jesus now continues his commissioning directives with verse 23, saying, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Oh, another big verse. What is he saying here? But what we have to understand is he's continuing his charge to charge his faithful with the task before them reminding them that they are representatives now as they go of God on earth. They are to practice the things of God, hold accountable other true believers. With this comes a level of authority to make decisions, to enact judgment and have good discernment. Not ever taking the place of God or the authority of God, but to live out the authority that He gives us as kingdom ambassadors, as heralds of His kingdom. Let me show you two other times that Jesus spoke in this way about the authority that we, the church, would have in this season. And see if you notice with me a very, if not similar or same language he uses in these two other texts as he uses here in verse 23. Matthew chapter 18, 15 through 20 is the first one I want to show you real quick. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, real quick, let me just insert this observation. We live in a world who, in their sin, has a priority that, that basically preaches stay out of each other's business. And we often are guilty of buying into that concept of staying out of each other's business. Parents, what happens when you stay out of your kid's business? Right. It goes bad. The, the, the narrative of our world says that as the kids get older and become teenagers, we, we get out of their business more and more. I would argue it should be the opposite. We need to be in their business more and more the older they get. Why? They're more susceptible to the lies and the manipulations of the world that you would steward the authority God's given you while they're still under your authority as children until they become adults, to love them enough to be in their business, to walk with them and talk with them and not take the easy way out, to use the authority God's given you. Church, we're given an authority of God to be in each other's business. Read that passage again. It says, 
pursue each other, work these things out, bring witnesses, call each other to account, be in each other's business. Why? Because I'm really not loving you if I see you struggling with sin and then just turn a blind eye for the sake of playing nice. That's not love to leave you in sin that's going to hurt you or a testimony against our Lord. What's love is to actually speak things sometimes that will be hard for you to hear, to speak up. Say, I love you enough to say this. I realize it maybe puts our relationship in some form of jeopardy, but I love you enough to say these things. And that we would do that according to God, not according to our flesh. Obviously, many, many people or churches have spun off into just crazy activity that's outside of God's word. But we are to do this as according to the scriptures instruct us to do it. But notice what Jesus says next. A lot of times we conclude this passage right here, but take into account the fullness of what Jesus is saying in this instruction to the church and calling them to this. Verse 18, see if this sounds familiar. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What's he saying? He's saying this work I've called you to do, this authority I've given you, is an authority, and it will be respected. It will be endorsed by God. It, it, it has work in earth, and, and it will pay its dividends in heaven even. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. <laughs> how, how often is that passage pulled from its context? And the modern church has said, the Lord shows up when we have more than one. If two or three of us are together, now God is here. As, as if he's not there when you're just alone with him. We've turned that into something that's not sane. <laughs> and, and it's talking about authority, saying, I've not called you to, to do this alone. I've called you to come together and in a plurality, protect and, and look to seek to do things as according to my word with the authority I've given you so that my godly endorsement of that work and work in and through you will, will happen, will be unto eternal things, even unto heaven. He's giving the church authority to hold, us, hold each other accountable, to forgive each other, to discipline each other. Kingdom authority. Here's another one. Again, famously really seen in just a whole different light. Matthew 16, 17 through 20, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Do you see a theme here? It's talking about authority. It's talking about the work he's commissioned the church to do, the body of Christ, the blood-bought people of God. Now, this doesn't mean salvation goes through Peter or Peter could act however he wants in sin, but it means you who are a part of the church have authority to do the things of God that he's commissioned us to do. To speak into each other's lives, to hold each other accountable, to discipline, 
to bind up or even to send out as the scriptures call us to do. Man, I would so love to just continue to mine down into this point right here. But there's so much other good things that God do, that Jesus is revealing. And I want to move into the next part of the narrative with you. So, so let's do that in a very special interaction as we look to verse 24 and 25. John 20, 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I mean, can you imagine? So basically what's said right there is Jesus has found them in this locked room. He's been interacting with all the disciples, all but Thomas has not been there yet. And so this conversation concludes and the disciples go out of this place and they go find Thomas. And what they we have seen the Lord. He has risen. He's alive. <laughs> but here's what Thomas says, unless I see his hands, the mark of, it, of the nails, the place, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So John helps us understand that Thomas was not in the room yet, and therefore he didn't get to see the resurrected Christ or hear his counsel and love for them yet in this resurrected state. So he's hearing this second hand, Jesus has risen. In his flesh, I can see how this is overwhelming for Thomas. Why? Because he has been in the last hours and days digesting the brutal death of his master. They tore him to pieces. They filleted the skin from his body. They beat him they bloodied him beyond recognition they hung him naked on a cross for all to see and watched him die he's likely in a place of low grief and so the testimony that jesus is alive is something in that moment his flesh just does not process it's so big. It hurts so bad. It's just too much to consider. And I think this is something, church, that we can really relate to. Likely you've been there too. You, you have been in the middle of a very hard season. A, a season of transition. The loss of a loved one. You've received terrible news from a doctor or from the bank, or from your employer. And, and it's all too easy to let our circumstances swallow us in moments like this to such a degree that our faith is tested to the point that we will even declare that maybe even God can't even fix it. It's that bad. And one of the things that comes with hard moments whereby our faith is floundering is the temptation to lay ultimatums before others or even before God. To feel so trapped in your circumstances that you tell God that he's got to prove to you, he's got to show you, he's got to deliver you so that then you will believe or continue or address whatever's lacking. Thomas says, unless I see the hands, 
The mark of the nails. Place my finger into the mark of the nails. Place my hand into his side. I will never believe how slippery this slope is that we can often find ourselves in. But you have to understand, we have to understand, it is sin to put God in our debt. To say to him, you must first deliver and then I'll do this. We must not be so sinfully presumptuous as to tell God how to act or what to do. We must state no terms to the Lord Most High or try to put God in our debt to demand that He must do something to then receive our trust or our belief. Now, if we give Thomas the benefit of the doubt, it is potential that his lack of belief is not as much in what God is able to do or has done, but maybe more of a lack of trust or belief just in his brothers. Realize he's getting this second hand. Did you guys really see this correctly? Until I see it, I won't believe. See, sometimes our lack of faith is just a, a failure to trust others, too. We can be so pessimistic and doubting really all the time. And so I just ask you just in general for yourself to consider, are you like that? Does your faith have a hard time leading you through life because, because you just simply kind of fail to trust anyone to, with just about anything? Church, may we find a cling to Christ in such a way that we would abandon the fruit of sin and cling to God. He would redeem us from our sinful skepticism and joyfully embolden our trust and belief that we would lean on God more than we do and lean on each other more than we do. In this way, we're less on an island, less removed from the body of Christ, thinking I'll make a way in my faith on my own, but to engage in the work He wants us to do and do together. Look at verse 26, John 20, 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with him. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. First, can you imagine to hear that Jesus, your Master, your Lord, is resurrected after such a brutal death, and then eight days go by. <laughs> I can't even imagine the tension among the disciples and Thomas. I can see them saying over and over again for eight days, Thomas, we're not lying to you. <laughs> and then Thomas saying, stop pressing me. I'll believe it when I see it. And another day goes by, and another day goes by. And another day goes by, and Thomas starts walking a little taller. Right? Right, guys? Right? Another day goes by. See? And then you hear a verse in 26. 
We see once again, they're locked in. The fear of persecution is still abounding. They're not resting in the peace and the power of Jesus. He is all of a sudden among them again. Jesus is standing there among them in a locked room. And what does he say to them? Peace be with you. This is the third time recorded that we know of that he says this. Why? Why does he say it so many times? Because in our sin, this world is at war. We are at war with ourselves. We are at war with sin. We are at war with each other. We are at war within our families, within society. Therefore, true and holistic peace is something we truly lack unless Jesus intervenes and gives us an entirely new standing and power to navigate this war-torn world. In chapter 14 of John's Gospel, Jesus said very potently, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Are you troubled lately? Are you afraid? Broken and undone, feeling out of gas. Don't be swallowed up by the fruit of sin and this broken world. Know Jesus. Know the peace that only He gives. Peace that is like nothing else. Jesus knows it's going to continue to be hard for the disciples. That persecution will come. That great loss and hardship will happen. Great injustices will happen. But God is on the throne. And Jesus won the battle on behalf of those who would truly and fully give their lives to Him. Therefore, even when the storm rages, there can be in Christ alone true peace. Do you know that peace? Maybe you're thinking, if you're honest, Pastor, I've I've trusted Jesus, but I just still don't feel like I have that degree of lasting peace that you're talking about. And so I would say, to whatever degree this is true in your life, is the degree that you are not looking to Jesus in faith, but you are still looking to some aspect of religion. To some degree, you have tried to add Jesus to your life instead of truly dying yourself and live unto Christ fully. Many of us can be guilty of trying to add Jesus, but still remain in control of our lives. That control that you still cling to is the source of your worry and your fear. Not any part that is connected to trusting in Christ. There will be no peace as long as you have any part of your life, any grip on the steering wheel. 
We have to truly and fully trust him. We have to trust that his victory on the cross is sufficient. Trust that he is able to do more than we could ever dream. That he will accomplish his will and plan. Trust that his will is better than your own. This is so key. If you say, I am all in for Jesus, but you're still demanding that he conform to any part of your desires, then you're not all in. You still have a hand on the wheel. And that right there is the enemy's open door to stir in you fear and unrest. You've left that door open. I, I praise God for the testimony of how many in our church in these last years have finally come to a place where they get this. You grew up maybe in or around the church. Maybe you've tried religion for a season, but it never really took over. You never really came to know the peace and joy that you saw others experiencing. And then the gospel clicked. The fullness of what God did in His grace came into view. The insurmountable depth of sin that declares you guilty, you saw finally your depravity, your hopelessness without Christ. The depth of Christ's love, you saw the sacrifice of what he did, and it was utterly beautiful that there, there now to this moment had been no greater testimony you have ever heard or come to see. That's why it's called the good news. The joy that came with finally giving it all over to Jesus and trusting his word and finding your deepest joy in him has been like nothing else. I've seen it in so many of you. And it's truly one of the great testimonies of how God is at work in this church, in this historic church, in its rebirth, in its reformation that we're in. And I believe there are so many more that are about to come. I know we're bunkered down in what I'm calling the clubhouse lately. But, but God is doing a work in and through us that is God. Not us, but Him. People will come to hear. They're seeing the difference. And they're going to want to be part of it. Not because we are something special. May we never make it about us. But because God is transforming lives in this church in a special way. Because God is so very special. And at work in and through us in amazing ways. Praise God. Amen. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And look at verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Because Thomas is one of his sheep. Because he loves 
Jesus loves him, and because he knows him, Jesus shows up to comfort Thomas, to meet him where he is. Praise God, church, that despite our utter failing so often to walk by faith and not by sight, that we fail at that so often, that he is still willing to meet us where we are. Amen? When Jesus says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. He's reorienting Thomas's focus of faith. He's saying, stop acting as an unbeliever. You are a believer. Be who you are. A believer in me. Jesus, Lord of all. Jesus is reorienting his faith focus. Oh, how we all need this. Right? We can be so quick to, in a self-righteous way, kind of think of Thomas or people like Thomas and can't believe he didn't trust his brothers and believe that Jesus rose after all he saw, right? But don't we do this all the time? Each of us is, is prone to wonder. We're, we're prone to get our eyes off of Christ and to, and to focus in on the storms. Like Peter, do you remember? That day, in their little dinghy of a boat, the storms were raging around them. I mean, making deadliest catch look like it's child's play. And they're being thrashed. And in the midst of that raging storm, there is Jesus walking on the water. And while everyone else is wetting their pants, Peter says, call to me, Lord, I want to come to you. And Jesus says, come. And he steps over onto the water. Jesus is walking on the water as he's looking at his Lord. God's at work in and through him the most amazing way. He's trusting in Jesus. He's focused on Jesus. And what happens the moment that he takes his eyes off of Jesus and begins to focus on the storms that rage around him, he begins to sink. And Jesus has to reach down and say, ye of little faith. The one whose faith was mightier than all the rest still found a way to pull his eyes off of Jesus, to look at the storm, to be swallowed by the storm. And we are vulnerable to this too. We are prone to do the same thing. Prone to not abide in Jesus, who, as he said, is the vine. We are the branches. To abide in him. Oh, how many days it's easy to not see Christ, who is life, the vine, and abide and cling to and worship and focus all our priority on him but to get distracted with that promotion or with that family happening that's coming or that new phone or that whatever you're getting into and, and to begin to wonder, to begin to find our joy and our satisfaction and try to find these things in other things in his creation. We... Like Jesus is doing for Thomas here, we need gospel reorientation all the time. This is why here at Disciples Church, we're so focused on trying to love you enough to help you recognize that while we love your regular attendance and Sunday worship, you need to be in community with people, known and known to others, so that they can know you enough to love you enough to do this gospel reorientation in your life. To love you enough to help you pull your eyes and remind you Jesus is better. 
Because without that, you leave, you leave me alone, man. I'll get hooked up into other stuff and get distracted, and it begins to just take hold in, in little things. And you know what I mean? I had a brother this morning who loves riding Harley motorcycles as much as I do, and, and his bike got wrecked last night when someone else was on it. And I saw him this morning. I know he's bombed, but I just said, Jesus is better. He said, yeah. And, and it's just true. We just need that. We need that reminder. We need each other. Your elders, we, we need this in each other's lives all the time. Or we're vulnerable. Have each other, have, have our wives, have others in our lives to remind us Jesus is better, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom our faith depends from start to finish. The author and perfecter of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 12. To abide in the vine. We are the branches. As I've said many times before, you read that, okay, I need to abide in Jesus. And you think, I need to do that. But Jesus didn't say that it's just up to you. He said, you're the branches. He, he's talking to the church. Again, you're meant to do this together. You're meant to be in community so others know you and are walking with you and discipling you and walking with you. I'm the vine, you are the branches. It's plural. It's never, we're never in, in redemption meant to do life outside the church, outside of real life together. Why? One of the main reasons is so to continue to abide. I need my brothers and sisters to help keep my focus on the vine. And as, as we do, he will bear much fruit in our lives, it says. Apart from him, we can do nothing, he says. So I say to each of you this morning what Jesus said to Thomas, because I love you, and I can do no better than to reorient you to the heart and mind, your heart and mind to Christ. Do not disbelieve. Believe. Don't stop believing. The journey ripped that off from Jesus. And no, that's cheesy. That's bad. I debated. I had a really good giggle over it. And my prayerful prep and God, thank you for moments like that. I'm going to be cheesy enough to share that with the church. No, seriously, I, I pray it be so. I, I pray you, you don't find yourselves in those seasons of disbelief because you've allowed people in your lives, because you're constantly being reoriented, because he's at work in that way, where you're not trying to share the grip of your life with him. You've given it to him, and you truly, you don't disbelieve. You believe, you endure, you continue. Not looking to your circumstances or the storm to define you, but your eyes and your heart on the Lord every step of the way. Look at Thomas's response. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He believes. Yes, it's true. He sees that Jesus is indeed alive, is resurrected from this gruesome death that he watched him go through. It has been done. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a great teacher. He is God. He is Lord of his life. My Lord. My God. How I pray that you see Jesus not as something to add to your life or to glean from as the means to another end, but you see him rightly. You see him fully. He is God. He is God in flesh. 
God who came to save us, God who is worthy of all of our lives. And finally, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He's talking about us. Jesus blesses Thomas with what he needs to return to faith, but he takes this opportunity to remind his disciples who are listening that faith doesn't require physical evidence or it wouldn't be faith. Yeah, it's nice at times to be blessed with with some of that, and God will do that at times, just as he did for Thomas. But trusting God is based on faith. Faith is hope in something you don't see. I love how Peter later in the early life of the church, we'll write a letter in 1 Peter and speak of this in chapter 1, 8 through 9. I want to look at this way of looking at this through Peter's eyes as a way to close this morning's sermon. Though we have not yet seen him, though you have not yet seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's highlighting this beautiful reality that there are many now who, unlike him, have not seen physically the resurrected Christ, but they believed in him based on the testimony, based on God's sovereign work in their lives. They have placed their faith in him and they believe, and it is their joy to be his. And he's he's loving that. He's He's pointing out that it's not based on tangible things, but on Christ. Christ is the aim. You love Him. You believe in Him. Jesus is the aim. God has given us a great treasure for our heart. heart that says Jesus is better. Better than anything else we can see or taste or experience in the here and now. The living hope we have in this exile time of testimony and discipleship that's before us We believe in Him. We trust in Him. We endure in Him. On the person of Christ, I believe Peter had in mind the words that Jesus shared with him that day in that room when he said this. What he told to Thomas, John 20, 20, 29, blessed are those who have seen and yet have not seen and yet have believed. This is faith at its most simple. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, this conviction of things not yet seen, Hebrews 11.1. It's being sure of God's promises, that they are worth putting your hope in, and being sure that the invisible God in His hand in creation, in fact, do exist. Do you love Jesus deeply even though you've not seen Him physically? Do you have faith and joy and peace in him. The disciples would go on to be lined up, hung up, beat up for their faith in Christ. That was the most important thing to them. Most of them were killed for their faith. There was nothing in this world that was worth more to them. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. May it be all the more so of us. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for this time together, this hour that you've given us to, to look to your holy word, to be transformed and, and moved and molded and convicted that you've loved us enough to bring conviction, to shape us and to move in our lives in such a way where you're directing us to, to see sin, that we could confess that as sin and turn from it and take up a new course as a result of the gospel in our lives and and honor you with these things, that, that we would loosen our grip and let go of it entirely to trust in you holistically, that we would believe and, and yield to you in every way, no longer trying to share lordship or control, but trusting that it is much better. My life is better in your hands, Lord. Your ways are better than my ways. And I'm yours in every way, and so take my life, and may it be all that you declare it to be for your purposes. We thank you for your peace and for your joy that we have in Christ to endure us in the storms. That our testimony would be bright, that many would believe disciples would be made unto the nations. And for those who maybe found their way here today who have yet to believe, who have that taste or that, that cling to religion still, they would die to themselves and see the beauty of the gospel and believe and trust their lives to Christ all the way. Be forever changed. Join us together, the church, to, to go on this mission Christ has sent us for. And so we conclude our time this morning to worship you and your amazing grace and what you've done to set us free, that we would not keep it to ourselves, that our chains have been unshackled, that we would go and testify, tell the watching world, Despite what we face, be worshipped and exalted today, Lord God. In Jesus' name we pray.